with the right leadership, we can make sure everybody comes back, not just the wealthy food. Thank you. Well, Commissioner Hardesty, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great night and get those ballots in. Eight days to go. That was City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, who's running for re-election this November against challenger Renee Gonzalez. We heard from both candidates on the issues, and if you missed any part or want to hear it back, it's online at kboo.fm. For KBU News In-Depth, I'm Althea Billings. KBOO Portland. listening to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. My name is Emma and I use she and her pronouns and we have a full house tonight. We have sick, we have five amazing trans women and then an amazing non-binary person here. And we're going to be talking about elections because we are a week away from elections and unfortunately our transgender bodies have been the cannon fodder of a lot of uh, election electioneering this year and so we're going to be talking about the attack on trans people that's been going on in this country and also here in Oregon and uh, hopefully we'll t- come up with some good things to talk about while we're here tonight but tonight is all about elections on trans positive so let's all go around and introduce ourselves say your name and tell us a little bit about yourself let's start with you Gigi um, anyway hi my name is Gigi um, I have been active in the community for 10 years now, but I've been active in politics 
God, since I was 13, I think I was 13 was the first year I ever actually got involved in a political campaign. I was campaigning for the Clinton Gore 92 campaign. Um, I've been, like I said, active in that. I've been researching political politics, political history, presidential history. When kids were reading teen magazines, I was reading U.S. News and World Report and Newsweek. Um, I've also been involved in as a lobbyist. So I was a lobby later when we got that reproductive health care bill passed into law here in Oregon a couple years ago. So we could protect abortion rights here. And I also was involved in the transgender name privacy um, bill that got passed a couple years ago as well. So politics, elections, I love it all. Awesome, great, thank you. Um, let's welcome. go next to Lori. Uh, Lori, would you uh, introduce yourself, please? Yes, I'm Lori Buckwalter, and uh, I say she, and I, my involvement in what we call politics or public life started when I moved to Portland and kind of started exploring my options personally and otherwise and found myself on the wrong end of um, some employment problems. And uh, when I went public with that, <laughs> about my concerns about being fired, I guess uh, everything kind of blew up. And I uh, went on, I was on the radio the first time I went to the Human Rights Commission and talked about it. And so I heard my voice the next day on the commercial radio in town and, <laughs> and discovered I was not going to be private anymore. I, I don't know that I intended that per se, uh, but my involvement in a lot of public stuff started there because just out of self-preservation and this was at a time when there were very few support resources for trans people especially legally uh, and this is 20 25 years ago right so um i just found that i had to do a lot of things for myself and explore options legally um, try to re-establish my identity and and preserve my employment so that I could keep my family off the street at the same time because I was a single mom uh, with three kids in the house at the moment. And so that's how I got started. And then eventually I realized that the, the experiences I was going through, I should give some of it back and try to establish programs or work with people in the community so that things weren't so bad and unsafe and uncertain for the rest of people in the community who didn't have some of the advantages that I had and who were maybe a little less timid or a little more timid about being out in public. So that's what I got involved with. I started It's Time Oregon. I was executive director of that for uh, 10 years. Um, I be became uh, involved in national politics as well, but a lot of the accomplishments really were local. I kind of wrote and crafted and trained and and um, did public presentations around the non-discrimination ordinances in Portland and Multnomah County, some of the other cities in Oregon. Um, so that's where I really got my chops is doing that work about civil rights. And then I moved on to become the diversity coordinator for Multnomah County. And I did that for about five years, but I had to give up um, I had to give up politics to do that. 
and uh, it was very difficult. And eventually I found myself on the wrong end of the, the stick in working as an executive in Multnomah County. I was forced out of my job, largely through commentaries of people who said that I was religiously offensive to them and so forth. So I don't know, I, I moved out to the coast and uh, I've been on sort of hiatus publicly for a while, but I've come back and I'm really engaged in music now in town. Uh, we're doing the Trans Voices Cabaret plug uh, later on in, at the end of the month. And, I, and I'm really excited about that, about re-engaging with the culture in town. That's it. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Hey, thank you. Um, uh -huh. um, and Sheila, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, <clears throat> I think my involvement in politics started after grad school because um, I emerged in the uh, mid-80s and I was astonished that just changing my presentation suddenly stripped me of all the dignity that I thought went along with being an adult person. Um, I had all, all kinds of stuff happen. I'd have, I'd have people throw rocks at me. Um, I would have people <clears throat> yell <clears throat> the F word at me, uh, the F and GG one. And, uh, um, and I, I was just appalled that they would dare to treat me this way. And the thought that I could make that ha disappear by just changing my demeanor and suddenly get it all back seems so contradictory to me that a person is not valued just as a person that I I got to the point where I kind of, I was, I just discovered a Vita musical for the first time. I totally identified with a Vita. I'm sure I'm not the only one. And I thought, well, all I have to do is just go out and point out to people how awful this is and they'll just change. They'll, they'll get the message. And, at that time, I never, ever thought that from being a private, um, in a sense, clinical setting matter, uh, all of a sudden, uh, we would be almost seen as <clears throat> the greatest affront and danger uh, to the world. Forget global warming. The big problem is transgender people either going into bathrooms or competing in sports. And that all these years have happened and in some way we've gone we've done so much we've come so far and in other ways the the level of stupidity is worse than it ever was so i started out in tacoma um, and also <clears throat> what was uh did some educational debating with the org uh, head of the oregon citizens alliance at that time uh in tacoma their representative and some of that kind of thing to get the word out and then we got on um, there was a talk show that was on every Sunday evening at six o'clock <clears throat> and um, I suddenly realized that it wasn't just me asking for civil rights in our town it was it, there was a there was a lot of people coming out at the same time and we all connected around that particular campaign and we thought it once as a opposing a, a referendum to get rid of something that the city council had given us our rights 
and it was to take it away. And the next year, we were the initiative. We were saying, bring the rights back, and we lost both times. <clears throat> it was very dis disenchanting for me to realize that I was not welcome in my own hometown. Great, thank you. And let's go uh, to Jean. Jean, could you introduce yourself, please? Yes, good evening. Jean Bryant here. I'm one of the regular um, cooperative co-hosts of Transpositive. Uh, you've heard me speak many times over the past years. Um, I don't think my um, personal history in terms of um, political activism um, is actually really relevant uh, to, I think, the, the, the topic because it doesn't matter, uh, I don't think, um, you know, as long as you're out there and you're, you know, you're doing something and you're, and you're, um, you don't necessarily have to be an activist. I mean, when it comes right down to it, educate yourself and vote. That's my position. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and Nicolette, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm Nicolette. I'm one of the regular co-hosts here at Transpositive, and I use AM or they, them pronouns. Thanks. Um, so Nicolette, you have three stories that you're going to share with us to kind of get us started. If it's okay, what I'd like to ask you to do is do one story at a time, and then <clears throat> when you're done talking about the story, maybe we can all kind of chime in and comment on it. Would that be okay with you, Nicolette? That's what I was thinking, too. Great. So the first story I want to talk about uh, is regarding the WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, recently released the eighth edition of their standards of care. Some exciting changes include a whole chapter on non-binary care, uh, and facial feminization surgery has now been changed to facial gender affirmation surgery to include facial masculinization. Also, the list of FGAS has now extended to include many different kinds of surgeries, including hair removal. Plus, um, only one referral letter is needed now for gender-affirming procedures, and gender dysphoria is now no longer required for any procedure. Now, it specifies only gender incongruence is required. So what do you guys think? That's great. It's great to start this on a positive note. Let's talk about that first. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? I do. Go ahead, Sheila. One of the things that I've always been afraid of is that instead of being seen as an orientation, what we're doing and the way we live would be seen as simply a free choice lifestyle. And so I was also afraid because of the era that I came out at during that once we lost the support of the professional community, particularly the medical community, we would run into problems with, uh, for instance, let's say they went out against a doctor and said, well, if you're going to do surgeries, there's usually supposed to be a, quote, medical need for that. Yeah. Um, it helped me, actually, to hear everyone else talking about this. Um, the way I look at it is that how we are perceived is not 
how we live our lives, really. We're, we are, in a sense, outliers looking for legitimacy. And in order to find legitimacy, we have to package how we define ourselves so that it makes sense within some outer structure, whether it's the law or medicine, because they have their own rules that they have to follow about what is, for instance, what is experimental medicine versus uh, curative medicine. And to put it bluntly, if you don't have something that needs fixing, then it shouldn't be fixed is the attitude of people that would oppose surgery. And, and, it, and it shows in how they're looking at younger transgender people because they're saying, you can't make this decision now. And yet by the time you're 18 and can make that decision, at that point, a lot of the puberty damage has already been done. So it's, they, they get you coming and going. And similarly, if someone says, well, I'm non-binary. Now, if that is an identity, then we're still under the legal concept of you have a distinguishing characteristic that's immutable and therefore we need to protect you. But if, if, it, if, if someone said, well, my identity is this today and this tomorrow, then what it does is it trivializes our experience and it makes people think that we're just doing this for a lark or that it's just a style. It's something like club kids or it's something like, you know, disco, it'll go away. And so it's important that we be very sophisticated in, in what we do. We oftentimes would like to say, <clears throat> why can't we just use our own language for our own community? And why can't that be just okay? Especially if it seems affirming to, our, to us, it sounds good to us. And what we need to remember is that when you're trying to break into a resistant uh, structure, you, it's, it's we that have to still, it's unfortunate, but we do, we have to say, what do we have to do to package ourselves so that you can even see us? Because we've moved from the invisibility of days when we were just seen as a subcategory of schizophrenia, for instance, to now being perceived as being some sort of global uh, elitism, globalism to tear down uh, the basic structures that define living for everybody else. So we're basically messing around with their lives and that's how they see us. And it's, we're, we're not defining them at all. And we're, we're also not saying that our experience should be normative for them, but to be able to exist, to come out of the shadow and even to be, we have to be able to have people say, for instance, if someone has a transgender person in class, to have the teacher say, now please understand, this is, this is something that may be new to all of you, but this person deserves our courtesy, our respect, and, and our help as they explore who they are, are going to be more comfortable with in their lives. Just as if a child came in with some other affliction, we, they, and, and, and let's say that it was going to be noticed, and then it would be important for the teacher to say, no, please. And the reason I know that is I remember how it was for me in my own childhood, and knowing that the, my only option was don't ever mention it, 
Don't ever even hint that you have this issue. And those were the invisibility days. So anyway, those are my thoughts for this evening on, on medicalization. It's not to undercut what Nicolette's saying. It's just to say we've got to be very careful that we don't give up the very support that's giving us what we've needed and, and waited for so long. It's not worth the fighting over words and losing the protections that we fought so hard to obtain. That's great. Gigi, you have your hand up. Why don't Deep you go on. next? Okay. Um, so... Um, I I know I'm going to sound like a good chair. I know I'm gonna, I am I know I'm not up to date on this. But what is the WPAC? What is that officially when it comes to healthcare? The um, world. Uh, hold on, late. I I pulled up my notes. World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Okay. Um, yeah. So they basically make recommendations uh, regarding the medical care of trans people. Okay. Now, when you were when you were bringing up when you were bringing up facial feminine, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, Emma. Gigi, I'd like to follow on to Nicolette's um, and make note here that it is the world professional. It's not. There is also U.S. Path, um, which dials in much closer to our circumstances here in the United States. But generally speaking, over the years the use of the WPATH standards of care has been a huge leverage point for us mm. in making um, advances both um, through legislation uh, and also through uh, case law um, in the United States. So it's not insignificant, it's hugely significant because it is a major um, professionally recognized leverage point. Um, so that I'll just say that. Oh, oh, okay. You know, um, a couple years ago, and I'm always kind of shy about bringing it up, but a couple years ago, when um, um, it was right around the time when Care Oregon, Medicaid, and Medicare started covering transgender procedures here in Oregon, um, I had, you know, I, I I was excited like everybody else. You know, I wanted to go and get certain procedures done. And I thought, I didn't know at the time it wasn't covered. I just said, well, it's covered. So um, I went and did what I thought I needed to for my facial feminization surgery. I got a letter from my therapist. Um, I asked my doctor at the time, my primary care, can you get me a referral? Can you get me set up with somebody? And she sent me to, um, she sent me to this nose, eyes, ears, ears, nose, and eyes doctor at OHSU. Uh, Dr. Lolo Martinez, if I can remember, I, yeah, I think that's her. And so we had an appointment and basically Martinez was great with me. And she said, when it came to asking the insurance company to cover the surgery, she stated that it would basically be for my, um, when it came to my medical needs, she said, well, it'll be for your school status, for your safety, because, you know, we want to, um, we, we know, um, she knew that trans people especially um, deal with a lot, um, we still deal with a lot of discrimination, but she wanted to make sure that I would be as safe as possible. So that's why she really pushed for me to get the surgery. And, you know, when, when, I, um, when I got a phone call one morning, because I, I was also waiting to have another surgery done that was unrelated, you know, I get a phone call. I'm, 
I'm half awake. It's six in the morning. I haven't had my coffee yet. I'm not completely awake. And she said, this woman on the other line said, oh, we want to let you know that you've been approved for your surgery. It's like, great. What surgery? It's like, oh, your facial feminization surgery. It's like, that got covered? It's like, yeah, you know. And so we went about and I did the surgery, got everything done. I went to care. I went to um, Basic Rights Oregon because I thought, well, I had the surgery. I want to make sure that whoever goes for it next time knows that this is the doctor I went to. This is how I did it with the letter and everything else. And then I get called into Basic Rights Oregon a couple, about a week or two later. And they said, uh, we just wanted to let you know that um, as far as we know, you're the first person in Oregon who's, I feel so embarrassing this. I hope I'm not tooting my own horn. I, I hate, I, I try and I try to keep this part very private and I'm always kind of embarrassed when I talk about these things because, you know, I just got lucky. I, I, I lucked out. You know, I had no idea that I wasn't trying to advocate or trying to change anything. I just got lucky. And I found out that Medicaid, what had happened is that Medicaid in Care Oregon, I was, I was going to say that I was hope, um, I've been trying ever since then to get things like facial feminization surgery covered, you know, things that I don't, I, I tell people they're not cosmetic, it should be covered under Care Oregon. So we yeah. had, Lori had her hand up and then Jean had her hand up. So go ahead, Lori. I'm sorry. I wanted to return to the theme of how medicalization relates to our identity. And for me, as I said, I, I, I go back to 1996, right? And at the time I um, became aware of the possibilities within the community for some of the services that I wanted my whole life. Um, I started, I was singing in a nightclub in town and so sort of changed my appearance and my, my job was really not happy about this at all. Mm -hmm. And they were about to call me out and they, but they did tell me at the time um, that if, well, if it was a medical condition, you see, it would be all different and we wouldn't fire you then. See, and I have a family at home and I'm a professional. So as it, as it turned out, I was seeing, uh, you know, somebody up at OHSU, a therapist who gave me the letter that weekend and I took it in and the whole battle for the next year of hell ensued because I used that letter to try to substantiate what was a claim, a disability claim in Oregon. It was the first one that had ever been uh, filed and accepted by the bully, I guess it was. And my my claim was that under Oregon law, if you had a medical dis condition that significantly altered your life activities and so forth, which is the, the definition of disability, then it needed to be honored. It had been taken out of the uh, ADA, of course, nationally by Jesse Holmes and his buddies but it still remained in Oregon law. So for me, that medical definition, that diagnosis saved my life. 
because I had to go through the next year and transition on the job in a company where they would not give me any accommodations whatsoever. But I held this this uh, disability contention over their head for a year, went through the year from hell, and at the same time fought to get private coverage from the company for my surgeries. This is not an easy thing to do. I, I got refused three times. I appealed and appealed and appealed. Even after they fired me, I was still appealing my surgery. And the day before I was going to lose my surgery date, I found out my appeal had come through positive for me. Uh, you know, my company resisted. They tried to stop it. They tried to block it. Mid-procedure, they tried to block it. Everything to remove my medical benefits just because they didn't like it, you know? So I'm not saying that sheer medicalization is our only definition, but for me, it was survival. And I also learned that this professional reference became the cornerstone of subsequent improvements in my status legally and so forth. So I, you know, I came out, I, I rejoined the world at a time when the, the definition of and the support of a professional community was what was keeping me alive, you know? It was keeping a lot of other people alive. I know there were a lot of misgivings about the, the, the medicalization and the disability connotations of that, but, you know, I was willing to do what I needed to do to stay alive and get through that. And um, so I'm... I'm really torn when I hear that um, there's this critique of our identity medically, you know, and I, I want to go on to more of that when I talk about what I saw last night, but, um, but for me, it's key. I, I, I do struggle at a time I was involved politically and we were trying to identify how you define trans rights. And we said it was gender identity which is a fundamental characteristic, right? It's a protected class under law. But if we move to gender expression, where just everybody has the freedom of doing whatever they think of, and it's not tied to professional guidance and so forth, that's an optional activity, it's been pointed out before. It's, it's an activity expression rather than identity. And so that's where we, you know, we hit the crux of this, uh, what we, we are and what we can become. We don't want to be medically limited, but I don't think that we can give up entirely the substantiation of our real identity and our, the, the real um, imperative nature of our identity without some reference to our life processes. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Great comments. Thank you so much. Jean, you're next. No offense to anybody in the conversation. A um, little civics lesson from Jean. Um, WPATH is relevant. Um, our experiences under that situation are relevant, but the chain of logic and the chain of process that extends from that topic all the way up to elections, and I'm going to start and work backwards. And using as an example, um, the all due respect, Lori, um, our uh, advances K 
came primarily um, through policy statements. They are they were somewhat um, substantiated through some case law based at the time on policy policy that was set by the Obama administration. Okay, by appointed officials who were appointed by people that we elected in the Obama administration at the Oregon state level, OHA, Oregon Health Authority, those positions, those commission positions are appointed, okay? And they're appointed typically by the governor and then affirmed by some other elected officials. Um, so we don't get to vote directly on those people nor do we get to vote directly on many of the higher level judicial bodies that um, will rule on this kind of stuff, like the uh, insurance commission and that kind of stuff. Um, so my, what I wanna do is bring this all the way back to elections. And you have to pay attention to um, both these higher level elections and the elected officials themselves but also um, some of the lower level um, positions that may or may not seem all that super relevant to you, like your state representative, county commissioners, okay? It's, I, I, you know, I'll just stop there. Um, and, and they do, and they have huge impacts uh, yeah, you know, on uh, our community, um, like OHA, or, or the Insurance Commission, or or the, the body that uh, decided in the state of Oregon to accept the Medicaid um, payments from the federal government that carried with it the policy statement that said you cannot exclude people you know, of a, you know, of, of, for, for, for gender identity. That was policy. It's not in law. That was always policy. Okay. So I hope that makes some sense to some people, but it's like vote for God's sakes, for God's sakes, for your own sakes, vote. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you're listening to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. Uh, tonight is uh, we're talking about elections, and um, uh, next week is election day. Uh, so we're kind of skirting around the edges of talking about issues where our transgender bodies come into conflict with public policy. Um, so. We're gonna, during the second half of the show, what I'd like to do is, uh, Nicolette has two stories that they would like to read. And so we're gonna ask Nicolette to please read those two stories. 
And then we're going to go to Lori, because Lori has a story to tell us about something that happened to her yesterday. And then after yeah. that, we're going to throw the doors open, and we're just going to talk politics. So yeah. if that works for everyone, go ahead, Nicolette. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just needed to respond to something that was said earlier. Um, so first of all, there are tr some trans people who have a gender identity that does change over time, such as gender fluid people. You know, they may identify as non-binary one day, male the next, female the next. That is okay. That is valid. You know, that, that doesn't trivialize anyone else's trans experience. There are people that just are that way, and that doesn't mean it's a, a trend or a fad. That's just the way that some people are, and they can't help that any more than any other trans person can. And second of all, I think there's been a misunderstanding here in this discussion that um, no longer requiring gender dysphoria for gender-affirming procedures is somehow taking anything away from our rights. It is not. It is expanding our rights. It is expanding care to other trans people who may not necessarily have gender dysphoria, but are still trans and still deserve gender affirming care just as much as the rest of us. So I'm sorry. Great point. No, that is a great point. That's why we're so glad you're part of this show, Nicolette. I mean, I just, I so appreciate you. So Jean, if it's okay, I'd like to let Nicolette read their other two stories and then let Lori tell their story. And then we're just gonna kind of throw the, the last 20 minutes open for just really open conversation. Is that, does that work for you, Jean? Okay, great. So Nicolette, why don't you read your last two stories? We're not gonna comment on it because we already used half the show commenting on the first one. And then we wanna hear Lori's story. So go ahead, Nicolette. Yeah, so uh, on a more lighthearted note, the video game Apex Legends is releasing a new character who is an out and proud trans woman. The character Catalyst will be playable in a new update of the game coming November 1st. Apex Legends also has a non-binary character named Bloodhound who goes by they them pronouns and has been playable since the game's launch. So our next story, this is not as fun to talk about, but I think it's important to be talked about. Caitlyn Jenner is up to some shenanigans again. If you don't know who Caitlyn Jenner is, she is a famous trans woman who is also rather infamously transphobic. So uh, Caitlyn Jenner recently complained on the show Fox and Friends about a story involving a high school girls volleyball team who complained about sharing a locker room with their trans teammate and were told by the school to change in stalls if they felt uncomfortable. So on the show, Fox and Friends, Caitlin referred to the trans girl as a quote, biological boy with a penis and claimed quote, if I had a daughter, I would want my daughter, my daughter would be uncomfortable there. And interestingly underlining the implication that she would want her child to be transphobic. Like it, it sounded like she was gonna say, I would want my daughter to be uncomfortable, but yeah. Just a thought. Um, anyway, she believed the trans girl should be forced to change in a different part of the locker room. And she also tweeted on October 3rd, quote, we cannot have biological boys with penises changing next to our doctors, our daughters in locker rooms. Um, and she's, she's accused the left of politicizing the trans community and driving this country apart, which is ironic when it's the right that's making our basic human rights political. 
Great points. Thank you so much for sharing that, Nicolette. Um, so we're going to move to Lori for um, a couple for a few minutes. Lori has a story to tell us about an experience that she had with uh, some transphobes at an election event yesterday. So Lori, could you please share your story? I, yes, thank you. I will try to be brief, but uh, as much as the events that I witnessed or the things that people said, I, it brought up a lot of issues that I'm happy to discuss within the context that we, we've talked about. I really appreciate people's contributions about not only their aspirations, but the reality of the situation. And politics is about the art of the possible, you know? I When I was doing a lot of uh, public advocacy in Portland, I'm sure that I, among some people had a reputation of being um, rather conservative about what I would propose as especially laws, because we not only need to satisfy our own sense of right and wrong and our own sense of identity, but if we're going to be doing politics or public presentation or public education, we have to find terms that other people will understand and accept. What I saw last night was a lot of people, not well, not a lot, but there were four or five individuals who went up and recited the, um, the Republican talking points about their concerns about their daughters in sports and the concerns about, about families making decisions about their trans children and getting affirming care and so forth. And then some more general commentary that points in the general direction that A, to be trans is, you know, unspeakable and a tragedy, and B, that somehow they or the culture in general had a stake in what people's actions and treatments were. Um, and I found it just drove me crazy <laughs> to hear this stuff. And I tried to, you know, raise some of these, uh, this directly, and I, you know, I didn't get a chance to, to address the candidates, uh, and this was the debate for the Washington Third District between Marie Perez and Joe Kent, right? And oh, Joe, poor thing. Yeah, Joe and well, Kent there is you just go. awful. So that, and here's the thing, though what what you see behind these statements and the little the little intros that people have wound up for them is, I think, a strategy to trivialize, to demonize us to separate us from the same medical rights that other people enjoy. If I ask everyone in the crowd last night, conservative or liberal, whether they would be willing to disclose their medical record, medical information publicly to join the conversation, I am, I'm pretty sure that I would get very few takers on that. But this is exactly what they expect to be able to do with other people, with families who, are, who have gender affirming care in mind or individuals who make you know or who are seeking medical care and medical protection this to me is it's so obvious that marie went up there and she tried to explain she tried to speak over the the the, the hoots and hollers and explain her understanding of trans care i do not think we should have politicians explaining what trans identity is to people i don't think that that they should have any necessity to make commentaries on the efficacy or necessity of medical treatment. It is not in their purview. It is not in the purview of the public to invade my medical information. 
I can't eat, I won't even give it to my doctor now because I realize that medical records are not, are quasi public. But that's the issue. Just like with abortion, it's a matter of privacy. Privacy of your medical uh, information and your medical processes that society, whether or not, or, or segments of the society, whether or not they understand your personal medical information or history, that it is really none of their business, just as it's none of my business what theirs is. You know, and the same principle applies, as I said, to abortion rights. You see, then we place ourselves in a common ground with people who we want to affect. What we have to say to people is, if you don't want to give up your medical information, privacy rights, then don't expect me to do trans people outside the realm of, of normal humanity. This political, you know, excoriation that's going on from the Republicans is trying to say, well, we have certain rights, but people like you can't have it. But they won't say why it is. You see, I think we need to force people to return to constitutional principles, to the ideas of civil rights that are, that are not deniable, that are not removable, that are not up for negotiation, you know? And that has to be the political discourse. So Marie should not have explained what trans identity is. They tried to pin her down. One question is, well, will you approve of gender affirming care, which is of course a trap to Republicans, because if you say yes, then they cry murderer. They, are, they called her a murderer anyway, because she was ambivalent about whether she would deny that. Do you see? So that's where we're being pushed into de dehumanization. And, you know, I think that that's the political key is and what I did in my work is to try to work as a civil rights issue, as a fundamental uh, characteristic that should be protected like other characteristics. I wrote to OBB and I said, you know what, <clears throat> if people had made excoriating comments on a racial basis or a religious basis, you would have not allowed that. You would have stopped it. And that's part of the discourse now, the degeneration of it is that, that people feel that we're not you know, included in civil rights the way other protected classes are. Um, so, like I said, I was talking. We were. I was going to talk about elections, and it's pretty brief what I was going to discuss. But it's you know it connects to what we're all discussing, and it's the governor's race, and it's coming up next. It's coming up on the eighth, and I was reviewing before the show. I wanted to make sure that I knew the point I wanted to talk about, and it connects with the trans. Yeah, it connects with the LGBTQ community, and. I was mentioning, I was watching, I, I keep up on the polls, I watch what's going on, and, you know, I really, it scares me that it's a three, 
person campaign election. Betsy Johnson, who I abs, you know, forgive me for saying this, she's not, she was never a Democrat. There are points in her political policies that are not of the Democratic Party. And, you know, I, um, and Oregon has been, Oregon, a Democrat has held the seat for governor for 40 years. And it scares me because Betsy Johnson's campaign could be siphoning off votes from Tina Kotek's campaign. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, the Democratic Party is any better than the Republican Party. I, I have issues with both of them. I, I question everything. But we've worked really hard to get an equality bill, a quality law here that protects LGBTQ people here. And, you know, Drazen said something that really scared me, that she wants to take, um, she wants to take politics out of schools. And, you know, I don't think that that's what we're trying to do at all. And I have this fear that if Drazen was to get elected, that she would pull a DeSantos from Florida and do a don't say gay thing, Bill, don't say it, don't say gay, which also includes don't say trans, don't say anything LGBTQ. So I'm just trying to let my friends, I'm letting people know that when the election comes up, this is a really razor tight election. It's what is it? I think they're tied 42% each, you know, with Drazen and Kotek and Johnson's numbers keep dropping. But I'm just letting people know, you know, if you're thinking voting for Johnson, don't. I know that midterm elections um, usually are um, usually the party that's holding the White House loses them, but we cannot afford to lose this governor's race because it could affect the LGBT community in ways that I don't even want to think about. So, you know, I go Kotech, but don't vote for Johnson. Independence rarely win. And if Grayson gets in there, I don't even want to begin to think about it. But that's where I'm speaking at. That's where I'm stopping. But I just wanted to share that bit. You know, we've got to take this election seriously because our future could depend a lot on it. And not just LGBTQ people, but a lot of disenfranchised people in the state. Thank you so much for sharing your opinion, Gigi. Thank um, you for allowing Jean, me. Jean, would you like to go next? If our lived experience following the 2016 election, as well as the 2018 election, midterms, 2020, if these things have not given um, enough lived experience for us to recognize that election politics and rhetoric can be quite different than the actions of those elected, okay? Election politics are typically, you know, 10 second sound bites and one or two hot topic, hot button um, issues. Um, look through that, please. Don't be a single issue voter. Um, and, you know, I mean, the 2016, anybody who was politically astute realized that the, that the, the Supreme, federal Supreme Court was what was at stake. And not just from a presidential perspective, from a Senate perspective. Okay, please look back and learn from these lived experiences. 
we are now stuck with a federal judiciary that is not in our favor. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that many folks went, ah, this system is screwed up to hell with it. I'm not gonna participate anymore. I'm gonna go out on the street and, and complain. Well, you know what? But going out on the street and complaining, yes, that has meaning. But voting has a hell of a lot more meaning and it sticks and stays a lot longer. Thank you, Jean. <laughs> um, Sheila, would you like to share any last thoughts with us? Um, you've got a, a few I minutes. would. I've been, I've been formulating it in my head as we've been going on as to how to say this best. But I think what, what I've learned at this particular stage of my life is that most, most arguments take place over a disagreement of, of, about what uh, a static state of truth would look like. And this is why we don't have to go to transgender topics to see this. We see this in Putin's recent speech where he was saying America thought that they had after the breakup of the Soviet Union, that America was going to be the sole hegemon and that the Western order, the Western values would be normative for the whole globe. And we are saying, no, it's not going to go that way. And so all of this stuff that's gone on with Putin and we're seeing it in the conservative movements in Europe, we're seeing it in Italy with uh, the election of, a, of a, someone that was part of the former uh, kind of fascist Mussolini kind of orientation towards politics, we're seeing this in places far beyond America and far beyond this election. And so what do I oppose to that? What, what stance can we take when we have people that have radically different assessments of what sex is for, what, what gender is for, and how people should behave, and, and how strict that that dividing line should be. What can we do? And there I get to the idea that reality is what you can successfully negotiate. And that's a very pragmatic stance. And it says, we get the rights that we've earned and we get the rights that we've been able to package in such a way that they're gonna make sense to people who disagree with us. And that's the only way that we've ever been able to survive. We're never gonna have more numbers. We're never gonna have probably more power. Uh, we're, we're not in, in the Caitlyn Jenner boats that can kind of have her cake and eat it too. We're not, we don't have that. Uh, and in my own experience, since we've been doing stories tonight, when I was coming out, I got a lot of support from the drag community uh, because it was, it was active in Tacoma and I, I found them fascinating people to be with even though they were not trans. I, I found that there was a place where I could be. And what I liked about them was their unblushing uh, ability to say, this is me, take it or leave it, and bam. And, and I love that. I love that brazen attitude and the show that came out, Pose, that's just finished its third season, um, brought that forward that at least in New York and, and in the Hispanic and black communities primarily, this was where that was possible to find strength and subs and self-respect and substance when there was nothing else. So what I want us as a community to always do is to say, 
Make friends where you can, but when you run up into opposition, don't put your head in the guillotine. Don't, don't give them the chance to monopolize the narrative. You either have to take it to another area where you can find agreement, or you just have to be tough enough and strong enough and united enough as a community that they can't divide us. And this is why the LGBT and plus and all of this is so important because without that unity, if they were capable of slicing us like a Swiss cheese or something, we, we wouldn't have any rights left. We have to stand together or, you know, or we would, we would all hang separately. So those are my thoughts tonight. Great. Thank you so much. So we, we really just have like about two minutes left. I just want to say it's been such an honor to be here tonight with all of these really amazing people. I mean, we have Gigi who helped to um, create a, a precedent for facial feminization surgery for Oregonians who are accessing um, uh, state health care. And we have Lori who has done so much work uh, in Portland on non-discrimination and on like expanding rights for transgender folks. We have Jean and Nicolette who have been uh, these amazing co-hosts of Transpositive for years and who both are like really effective advocates in their communities. And we have Sheila who is um, a published author and has a really long history of advocacy going all the way back to the Oregon fighting against the Oregon Citizens Alliance. So this has been a really great chance to talk about elections tonight. And um, so remember everyone, uh, November 8th is the last day to drop off your ballots in Oregon. And, uh, you know, take a look at your ballot and see who's actually supporting trans folks, who's actually supporting LGBTQ folks and, you know, vote for them. So let's all go around and close. And uh, if you have anything, last thing you'd like to say really brief, uh, please go ahead and do that. Um, Gigi, would you like to close up? Yeah, I mean, regardless of who you vote for, although I hope that you support people who are gonna support LGBTQ people and marginalized communities, you know, disabled, elderly, just vote, vote, because that is the most important tool you have. That is the most important right. And if you vote, it shows that you matter. Thanks, uh, Nicolette, do you have anything you'd like to close with? Yeah, I'm just gonna restate it. It's important to make sure you set aside some time to vote, you know, it's, it's something we all need to do if we want to make sure that we get the rights we deserve. Thanks. Jean, do you have anything you'd like to close with? Same thing Gigi said, <laughs> same thing Nicolette said, same thing I've been saying all along. Vote. Thanks. Uh, Lori? Well, who am I to blow against the wind? But <laughs> I, I do think voting is very important. And I, and I think this discussion is really important as well. And I'm really grateful to be a part of it. Thank you all. I, I was inspired and uh, said, yeah, so many times silently during this all. And I, I'm really grateful to all of you for what you've given me tonight. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. Uh, don't forget, next November, uh, next Tuesday is Election Day, so please vote. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Transgender people don't live here. I've never met anyone who's transgender. I swear I don't know someone who's transgender. Transgender and non-binary people like me hear this all the time. 
But according to the HRC Foundation, there are more than 2 million transgender people in the United States. We live in every community across this country. You might be surprised to hear that there are more transgender and non-binary people in the United States than there are. Starbucks, McDonald's, and Walmart locations combined. In fact, if you put us all together, there'd be more non-binary and transgender folks than the populations of DC, or Nebraska, or Maine, or Idaho, or West Virginia. As a matter of fact, 15 states have a lower population than the amount of trans folks in the U.S. So here are a few things to keep in mind. You don't always know when a person is trans. But we're your neighbors, your co-workers, your students, your customers, and even your friends and family. We exist in every culture, todas las culturas, throughout human history. And while we're more visible than ever before, sometimes you just don't see us. So when you hear about politicians pushing forward discriminatory bills, know this, these bills address problems that aren't even real. Problems that don't actually exist. But we do. 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 And we need your support. Listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM, and on the web at KBOO.FM. Here at KBOO, we honor the indigenous 